Okay, let's pray. Lord, we beseech you for your presence as we open your holy word. We pray, Lord, that we would treat it as holy because it is. It came directly from your hand, your voice, your word, Lord. We pray, Lord, that we would see its life-giving implications for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 25. And we're going to start off by reading verses 23 to 30. Exodus 25, verse 23. <clears throat> you shall make a table of acacia wood, two cubits long and one cubit wide, and one and a half cubits high. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a gold border around it. You shall make for it a rim of a handbreadth around it. And you shall make a gold border for the rim around it. You shall make four gold rings for it and put rings on the four corners which are on its four feet. The rings shall be close to the rim as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold so that with them the table may be carried. You shall make its dishes and its pans and its jars and its bowls with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold. You shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me at all times. Now, turn over to Leviticus chapter 24. Leviticus is the very next book in your Bible. So just turn to the right, find Leviticus, find chapter 24. And we're going to read verses 5 to 9. <clears throat> then you shall take fine flour and bake 12 cakes with it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each cake. You shall set them in two rows, six to a row, on the pure gold table before the Lord. You shall put pure frankincense on each row that it may be a memorial portion for the bread even an offering by fire to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, he shall set it in order before the Lord continually. It is an everlasting covenant for the sons of Israel. It shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, for it is most holy to him from the Lord's offerings by fire, his portion forever. My friends, the tabernacle is intended to be a picture of Jesus Christ. In fact, it's not even just one picture. It's many different portraits of Christ. Remember that the tabernacle was surrounded by this linen fence. Of course, linen is white, and white stands for purity, holiness. So that you have this Linen fence surrounding the tabernacle, keeping people out who were not qualified to enter. That speaks of Christ, our righteousness. The only way that we can approach God is through His righteousness given to us through faith. And then the very first thing you would see as you came through that one door, Christ is the door, the way to God. As you enter through the one door on the east, the very first thing you would see is what? Who remembers? Yes, the bronze altar. And that bronze altar speaks about Christ, our sacrifice. 
because it was there that the animals were killed, their blood was shed, they were picked up and put on top of that altar, and they were burned as a burnt offering to the Lord. And that speaks about how Christ took our sins upon himself and bore the wrath of God for us. And he was consumed as an offering to God, a sweet-smelling savor to the Father. Now, what was the very next thing they would see as they passed the altar? Washing their hands and feet. Yes, and what was that called? The laver. The laver. Yes, it was a bronze laver. And this speaks about Christ, our sanctifier. This speaks about how he washes us from the daily defilements. Like, we may have been to the cross already and been saved. We've been justified from all our sins at the cross, but we still commit daily sins. We still get our hands bloody like the priests do. We still get our feet dirty because they wore sandals and they're walking through dust. We have these defilements that cling to us, and so we bring those things to the Lord as we open His Word, and His Word, like a mirror, tells us what our condition is, and we speak out these sins to the Lord, and the Lord cleanses us through His Word as we confess them and repent of them. We go to the laver. So Christ, our righteousness. Christ, the door. Christ, our sacrifice. Christ, our sanctifier. And then we come to the table of showbread. Christ, our bread from heaven. We're going to talk more about that one today. And then, as, as you're entering the holy place to the right, you see that table of showbread. What do you see directly opposite to the left? What is that? It was the golden lampstand. Here we find Christ, the light of the world, the bread of life, the light of the world. Directly ahead, right before the veil, before you enter into the most holy place, there was one more object. Do you know what that was? It was the golden altar of incense. Christ, our high priest, who intercedes for his people continually at the right hand of God. Then, just one day a year, and only one individual, the high priest of Israel, could enter behind that thick veil on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And there was one object in this room. This room was smaller. The first room, the holy place, was 15 cubits wide by 30 cubits long. Now, do you guys remember what a cubit is? It's the distance between your elbow and your furthest finger. And I measured mine, and mine's 18 inches. And that's what they say a cubit is approximately 18 inches. It's very convenient because you never have to have a tape measure. Just pull out your elbow, and there you go. One cubit, two cubits, and that's how they measured stuff back then. So 15 cubits uh, wide, 30 cubits long. But this holy place was 15 cubits wide, 15 cubits long, 15 cubits high. It was a perfect cube in every direction. Within the holy place, you have three objects, a table of showbread, the golden lampstand, the golden altar of incense. But on that one day of the year, you went behind, or the high priest would go behind the veil, and there was what? The Ark of the Covenant. And there was a lid of pure gold on top of that Ark. Remember what that was called? The mercy seat. The mercy seat. Inside of this Ark were three things. You had the Ten Commandments engraved on stone. You had Aaron's rod that budded and the manna that God provided in the wilderness. That was inside of the ark. On top of it was a lid of pure gold called the mercy seat 
Over the top of it, you had these cherubim looking down, their wings overshadowing each other, looking down upon the mercy seat. And there we see Christ, our enthroned king. This ark was like a throne. His immediate presence, the Shekinah glory of God, emanated from over the top of that ark and mushroomed up over the top of the tabernacle and billowed out over the camp of Israel. It provided shade and the scorching sun, and it provided light at night. So if God ever wanted them to journey in the middle of the night, that light would set the direction and go before them and they would follow. So it speaks about Christ in all of its detail, but it also speaks about our life in Christ. The tabernacle is not just about these portraits of Jesus. It's also a portrait of how we can approach God. It's about our life in Christ. Let me explain that to you. The very first step that we take as a sinner is that step of separation. It's not even a step, but there we see that white linen fence that separates us. We are on the outside and we can't get in. And we're separated by that white linen, the white linen of God's holiness that bars us from his presence because we're sinners and he's absolutely holy second step is the altar the second step is not separation it's propitiation and propitiation is a big theological word but it's actually a bible word it's found four times in the new testament it means a sacrifice that turns away god's wrath that's what the altar did that's what the cross of christ did it was that sacrifice that turns away the wrath of God for all who trust Him. So we go from separation outside of the tabernacle, now we're inside of the outer court, and now we're at propitiation where our sins are paid for by the cross. The next step is purification. And that's what takes place at that labor. As Christians, now that we have our sins paid for, the punishment has already been borne by Christ, we still have daily sins, and so we need to purify our lives from those daily sins by confessing them to the Lord and by repenting of them, and His blood continually washes away all sin from our life. And so we can maintain fellowship with God. Separation, propitiation, purification. The next one that we're going to talk about today, communication, communion fellowship with Christ at the table of showbread. That's what takes place in the Christian's life after he's been to the cross. Now that he's learning to confess his sins, he finds fellowship with Jesus. The next step is illumination. Right across from that table is the golden lampstand, which sheds light, the only source of light. Without it, it would be pitch black because the curtains above it are, there's four of them. It would block out all the light from the outside. So this is the only source of light for the priests to minister by. And this is where we in our Christian lives, we have been illumined by the Lord. He's shown us His truth, and now we start to bear that truth to others. We start to witness for Christ, sharing the gospel, speaking the truth to one another in the church, in love. So we're being lights, bearers of light. The next step is not illumination, it's intercession, because that's what the golden altar of incense represents. The incense, as it goes up to God, represents the prayers of the saints going up to God. And so now as Christians, we learn to pray, not just for ourselves and our needs, we're learning to pray about others' needs. That's what intercession is, praying for the needs of other people. So we learn, we're, it's all about service, isn't it? Now that we're in the holy place, fellowshipping with Christ, 
sharing forth the truth of Christ, interceding for the needs of other people. But the final step, where you go behind the veil and you go to the Ark of the Covenant, is glorification. And this represents that time in our life when we're going to be in the very presence of God in heaven. We started at the cross. We have been meandering our way through this Christian life, uh, represented by all the objects of furniture, but the final one, the Ark of the Covenant, shows that we're, we're right there with God, seeing our Savior face to face. And that will happen for those who are truly in Christ. Now, only the priests were allowed to enter the holy place. Anybody could approach the altar. Even the sojourners and the aliens could approach the altar because that was the outer court. But only the priests were allowed the privilege of going behind the veil and going inside of that tent-like structure called the holy place. Now, inside of that, that tabernacle itself, there were two compartments, remember? The holy of holies and the holy place. You'd, as soon as you came from the outer court and went inside and looked around inside of this tent, this tabernacle, you'd notice a big difference. All of the objects on the outside were made of what? What were the objects in the outer court made of? Do you remember? They're made of bronze. But as soon as you go inside, everything is made of gold. Every object. The lampstand's pure gold. The table of showbread, the table is acacia wood overlaid with gold. All of the pans were made of gold. The altar of incense was overlaid with gold. So it's, wherever you looked, there was gold. If you looked up, you would see the, the roof, which was just these four layers of curtains, one after the other, but the inside of it was embroidered with blue, purple, and scarlet material with these cherubim over, uh, embroidered in the curtains themselves. So it was a beautiful place to be. It went from just sort of ordinary on the outer court to this beautiful place of being. I'd like Oleg, if you'd put up, first of all, this is what you might see in the holy place. The table of showbread to the right, the lampstand to the left, the golden altar of incense straight before you and right in front of that veil. And then notice the cherubim are embroidered on the, uh, the fabric, the veil and the, the curtains above. Now, Oleg, would you put on a picture of the table of showbread? So this was made of acacia wood. Acacia wood was an incorruptible wood. It just never rotted, it seemed. It just seemed to last forever. Overlaid with pure gold. Notice the four rings. That's so that the, the priests could carry this because they were constantly journeying for 40 years through the, des the desert. And notice the bread. You see, those don't look like loaves of bread, right? They look more like fat pancakes, don't they? But that's what uh, bread looked like, unleavened bread. It was more like a, a cracker than it was the kind of bread that we see, the kind that we eat, because we have yeast in our bread. They didn't. Um, there was a rim around it. See that rim, the border? That was probably to keep objects from falling off. So that's the table of Joe bread. And, and that's what I want to discuss with you this morning. We want to meditate on that article and what it means for our life today. That table was two cubits high, one cubit wide, I'm sorry, not wide. It was two cubits long, one cubit wide, and one and a half cubits 
high, so it was approximately the size of an ordinary coffee table in your home. It wasn't a massive structure. The altar was way bigger. The outside where they, they put the animals on, that was way bigger than this. It was just a small little coffee table-like appearance with the 12 loaves put upon it. Now, I want to ask four questions as we work our way through the text today. I want to ask four questions. What did that table represent? Then, what did the bread represent? And then, who could eat the showbread? And then, when was the showbread on the table? These are questions that I want to go over with you and seek answers for. So, first of all, what did the table represent? Well, folks, what do you do at a table? Eat. <laughs> that's obvious, right? We all we. That's the number one priority. But what else do you do besides eating at a table? Hmm? Schoolwork. Crafts. Crafts. Oh, you do school at each table. Okay. All right. Well, we don't do that because our kids are grown up. But what else do you guys do? Yes, yes. You visit, don't you? I mean, families try to have dinners together where we all sit down at one time so that we can talk about the day's events and share what's ever on our hearts. So a table is a place of fellowshipping, visiting, talking, communicating. That's what I believe God intended by this table. It was to be a place that represents fellowship with Jesus Christ. Remember Revelation 3.20? The Lord says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. Now, what does that mean? <laughs> How was the Lord going to dine? That means to have a meal with. How was the Lord going to have a meal with the church of Laodicea? I believe he's talking there about this sweet fellowship that we enjoy with the Lord. This communication together, this um, communion with the Lord. Do you remember the story of David and Mephibosheth in the Old Testament? Do you remember that David had an enemy? His name was Saul. Saul and Saul's son Jonathan died in battle, but uh, Saul had a grandson named Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth was deathly afraid of David because he felt like David was going to kill him because he was a possible heir to the throne. And so he didn't like David. He didn't want to be around David. He was afraid of David. But eventually, David and Mephibosheth met up, and David said, I want you to come into the palace and live there, and I want you to sit at the table with me. What was he saying? I want to be friends with you. You're not my enemy. I'm making you my friend. I'm sharing all my wealth all my riches with you. You're going to sit at the table and fellowship with me and enjoy friendship with me there at the table. In Matthew chapter 8, we'll take a look at this one, in verse 11, here are the words of Jesus. He says, I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there should be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What did Jesus mean when he said, many are going to come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? The table? What table? The table of the Lord. The table of the Lord? 
Okay? Well, of course, we're talking here about the eternal kingdom, the heavenly kingdom. This is when we are in the presence of Christ. And this table, it could be a literal table because the Bible does speak about a marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. It could be a literal table, or this could be talking about the fellowship, the eternal, perfect fellowship that we're going to have with Jesus once we leave this world and enter into the next world. That table. Um, there's another one, Luke chapter 22. Let's take a look at this one. Luke chapter 22, verse 28. Jesus said to his disciples, You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. There Jesus promised his disciples to sit at his table in his kingdom. Now remember that the tabernacle was a copy of the true one. Do you remember that from the book of Hebrews? God told Moses, make sure you follow these instructions to the T. He gave him specific instructions on how to build the tabernacle. And the book of Hebrews says that the tabernacle on earth was simply a copy, a replica of the true one in heaven. So if there's a table of showbread on the earth, that tells me that there's the true table of showbread in heaven. I'm not sure if there's a literal table up in heaven or if that table of showbread simply represents the reality behind it, which is perfect fellowship with Jesus. I can't really imagine what perfect fellowship was going to be like, because I've never experienced that, neither of you. No human being, short of Jesus, has ever experienced perfect fellowship with God, because our sin, our fallenness. But we're going to enjoy that one day, and that's what this table represents for us. Now there we have the representation of the table. Fellowship with Jesus Christ. Second question I want to ask you. Well, what did the showbread represent? You say, Brian, what are you talking about? Showbread. That's a weird name. What's showbread? <laughs> well, in Exodus 25.30, it's called the bread of the presence. Not gifts, like at Christmas time, but presence, like God's presence. He's with us. The bread of the presence, or the bread of the faces. What it means is that this bread was in the presence of God always and continually. But if you go to the book of Second Chronicles, in chapter 13, verse 11, this bread is not called the bread of the presence, it's called the showbread. So it had many names by which it went by. On this table, as we've already seen in the picture, there were 12 loaves split up into two different piles of six each. Looking like fat pancakes. Now, what in the world did this bread represent? There's 12 of them, right? 12 loaves, 12 cakes. At first glance, we might think, well, that's got to be a representation of Israel, right? Because Israel was made up of 12 tribes. The problem with that view, in, in my understanding, is that everything else in the tabernacle doesn't represent God's people. It represents God. It represents Christ, right? The cross is the altar. His being our sanctifier, that's the laver. The lampstand is Christ, the light of the world. 
the altar of incense is Christ the high priest. Everything points to Jesus, so it would be out of character for us to say that this doesn't represent Jesus, it represents Israel. But then, my goodness, why is there 12 loaves? Let's get to that in just a minute. Let me just say this. Jesus said in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Later in that same chapter, he says, I am the bread of God, which comes down from heaven. So Jesus claims to be the bread, the fulfillment of the manna, and I believe the fulfillment of the bread of the presence that was on that showbread. He is the reality. Those other things are shadows and types, pictures that look forward to him. Gnawing hunger. Have you ever experienced gnawing hunger where you haven't eaten for a long time? That's one of the strongest drives in a human being is to find something to satisfy that hunger that's gnawing away in the pit of your stomach. And you feel like you must have food, right? You have to get it. People have done almost anything to satisfy that need for food, need to satisfy hunger. The, the sad thing is that everybody has a hunger, and I'm not talking about a physical hunger, I'm talking about a soul hunger. They have a hunger for God, but they don't know it. They don't realize what this hunger is. And they're going about trying to satisfy that hunger that they feel with all the things that the world can provide. So they'll try drugs, and they realize that really didn't do it. They'll try alcohol, that didn't work either. And they'll try sex, as many sexual partners as they can find. They're still empty. They still have that hunger within. And they'll try money. They'll try to get, amass as much money as they can and as much possessions. And they'll, they'll take everything they can find from the world to try to fill this thing up that they, they know it's there. They know they need something. There's strong drive inside. But they're looking in all the wrong places. Jesus Christ is the only one that can fill up that hunger that every human being has. Because it's a soul hunger. It's not a belly hunger. It's a soul hunger. Our soul hungers for God. Augustine says, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee, O God. So let's get back to this idea of the 12 loaves then. If everybody has this soul hunger, and it can only be found in Christ, and Christ is the fulfillment of that bread on the table, why did God put 12 loaves instead of one? Well, I'll tell you what I think, and you test this out and see if you think this is a good explanation or not, but I, I believe it's because there's 12 tribes of Israel, Benjamin is represented as one of those loaves. Benjamin was a tiny little tribe. Judah was represented. Judah was a large tribe. Each one of the tribes of Israel were re represented on that table to show that Christ, as the bread of life, is provided for them. Now, in the Old Testament, the number 12 is just a symbolic representation of God's covenant people. And in the Old Testament, God's covenant people were who? The Israelites. In the New Testament, who is God's covenant people? 
Okay, the Gentiles who believe in Christ, right? The church. Or you could say the elect of God. Right? Twelve represents God's chosen people, His covenant people. Did you know that Christ is available and provided for all of God's people, whoever they are? He's there for them. Just like there were 12 loaves, that is, that is established so that we know that there is enough. There's bread enough and to spare in our Father's house. God has given us Christ as the bread of life, and He's enough for you, and He's available for you, and God has provided Him for you. You can have Him if you don't have fellowship with Christ. It's not His fault, because Christ is provided for you on the table, always available, and all you have to come is as a priest, come and take a loaf and eat. In other words, partake of Jesus. Partake of sweet fellowship with Jesus. Now let's move on to the third question. Who could eat the showbread? Did you remember from Leviticus 24 what it said there? Let's go back there. Leviticus 24 verse 9. It says, it, and he's talking here about the bread, it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place. The bread of the presence was only for Aaron and his sons. Those were the Levites, the Levitical tribe of Israel. That's all. If you weren't from that tribe, you were not permitted to eat that bread. Now, I do know that David and his men ate the bread at one point. That was kind of an exception, and God allowed that to provide for their need. But generally speaking, this was for the tribe of Levi, the priests. Now, who is Christ, the bread of life, provided for today? Who can partake of him? All priests can partake of Christ. But you say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you leaving me out? When I was a kid, I went to the Roman Catholic Church and I saw those priests up there and I'm not one of those guys. I'm not talking about a Roman Catholic priest. In the Bible, let's just talk biblically now. Let's not talk religiously, but biblically, who is a priest of God? Every single true Christian is a priest of God. 1 Peter 2.9, 1 Peter 2.9, Paul says you, talking about the whole church, you are a royal, what? Priesthood. priesthood. Every single one of you are a royal priesthood. And a holy nation. <laughs> and not only that, but Revelation chapter 5, do you remember in Revelation 5 where they're singing the song of worship to the Lamb? In verse 10, they're singing this, You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. <clears throat> and they're speaking about all of God's people. And they will reign upon the earth. God has made all of His people to be priests. Priests. You are to offer up spiritual sacrifices to God, as a priest would offer up sacrifices. Hebrews 13 says that those sacrifices are giving praise, the fruit of lips that gives thanks to His name, and sharing. Those are some of the spiritual sacrifices that we offer. God's house, His temple, is the church. We're in His temple right now. This place is a holy place because Christ is with us. 
It's transformed from a normal home to a holy temple every time we gather in Jesus' name here. We're all priests of God, every single one of us. So picture yourself as one of those priests who would go into the holy place. Not everybody had that privilege. Only the priests. You are privileged. There's a lot of outsiders. They don't get to go into this holy place. If you're trusting in Jesus, you have that great privilege. You go in, and on the Sabbath day, the priests would take out the old 12 loaves and eat it, in the presence of the Lord, and put 12 fresh loaves down. You and I, as priests, have the unspeakable privilege of fellowship with the living Christ. Nobody else in this world has that privilege, except for the elect of God, the 12 tribes, the church of the living God. Now, you say, well, how do I know if I'm one of those? You know if you've been made a new creature in Jesus Christ. If you've been born of the Spirit. That's the only way to become part of God's true church. It's not enough to come here and sit here on a Sunday morning. That doesn't make you a, a member of the living church. You must be born of the Holy Spirit. And changed on the inside. Given a new heart. New affections for God. New desires. So, that's who could eat the showbread. Number four, when was the showbread on the table? When was it there? Well, let's go back to Exodus 25, verse 30. It says, You shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me at all times. At all times. I read just this morning that when the hands of the priests were on the table gathering up the bread to take the old bread off, other priests' hands were mingled with their hands putting the 12 loaves on. So there was never a time when there was not bread on that table. Notice this also. If you go to the book of Numbers, chapter 4, check this out with me. Numbers chapter 4, notice verse 5. It says, When the camp sets out, Aaron and his son shall go in, and they shall take down the veil of the screen and cover the Ark of the Testimony. That's the Ark of the Covenant with it. And they shall lay a covering of porpoise skin on it and shall spread over it a cloth of pure blue and shall insert its poles. Now notice verse 7. Over the table of the bread of the presence, they shall also spread a cloth of blue and put on it the dishes and the pans and the sacrificial bowls and the jars for the drink offering and the continual bread shall be on it. Then they shall spread over them a cloth of scarlet material and cover the same with a covering of porpoise skin and they shall insert its poles. Did you see what I'm seeing here? Even when they were journeying, there was still bread on top of that table. It never left the table. <laughs> they just spread a, a, a cloth over it so that it wouldn't fall off and they covered it up and they carried that bread on top of that table in their wilderness wanderings through the desert. When they found a place to camp, they put it down, they put up the tent, they took the covering off and there was the bread. The bread was always before the Lord on that table. And I believe that's significant. Fellowship with Jesus Christ is always available to you and me. Now, to our shame, we don't really take advantage of this privilege like we ought to. But do you see that Christ is always present 
for you. He's always there for you to run into the throne room for a few minutes and spend time with Jesus in prayer or opening up his word and he's speaking to you and fellowship is taking place, communication is happening. You don't have to make an appointment to be with Jesus. You don't have to take a number. You know, like at the DMV, they give you a number and you wait and you sit down there for like three or four hours and finally they call your number. It's not like that. He is always there. The 12 loaves are continually before him in the tabernacle and we can partake of Christ at any time, all the time. That's the privilege of a believer priest. And so fellowship with Jesus Christ should be the regular and consistent pattern of the Christian's life. We need to cultivate the habit of fellowship with Jesus. And I'm using the word fellowship a lot. I wonder if you know what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm talking about relationship, friendship, enjoying the company of, communication with. That's what I mean by fellowship. Sharing together with. That's what fellowship is. Now, as we conclude this, I want to give you some practical ideas of how you can develop a life of fellowship with Christ. And these are more than just suggestions. I want to strongly challenge you to make fellowship with Christ a priority in your life. A very strong priority. First of all, how does Jesus Christ communicate with us? When he talks to us, how does he do it? His word? Okay. There, you know, in the Bible, you can find instances of him appearing to people and talking to them, right? He did that to Moses at the burning bush. You have instances of him appearing in dreams or visions. You have instances where he would send an angel to bring a message to a person. And God can communicate in all of those ways if he wants to. <clears throat> but the normal, primary way that God communicates with his people day by day by day is through this book that he has given to us, the Bible, the scriptures. That's his primary way of communicating with us. He can communicate with us through a word of prophecy. That's one of the spiritual gifts in the church. But even prophecy must be judged by the scripture to see whether it's in line with truth. So I, I want to encourage you to make the, the habit of your life to be in this book on a daily basis. That's why we as a church have decided we're going to go through a chapter a day so that the people in our church, we can all be get into the habit of, of opening the book on a daily basis and letting God speak to us. So if you want to hear God speak to you, open the book. Read. And I would encourage you not just to kind of go like this and read that verse and next day, okay, I'll read that verse. and Read through books consecutively. Verse by verse, chapter by chapter, read through them so that you get the context from the beginning all the way to the end. That's the only way you're going to learn how to hear the voice of God. So that's how Christ communicates with us. Um, just last Saturday, my older brother was turning 60 years old, so we had a big family gathering. And I have a, another sister who lives in Austin, Texas, and she flew out from Austin to be at this special party. And when our church started to read through the New Testament in January, she and her niece also started to read through it. And so our family are all texting each other about what we're seeing in the Word. And then I'll take the same text that I put down, and I'll put it over here, and I'll text it to all the guys in the church. So we have two different groups going. 
and that's not all. Other people in their church are starting to do the same thing. The thing's spreading. <laughs> it's really a cool thing. But she told me at this get-together last week, she says, Brian, this is the very first time. Now, I was got saved when I was 17. I'm 53 now, so that's 36 years. This is the very first time in my 36 years of being a Christian where I've had a consistent time in the Word every day. It was always so hard for me. I, I just couldn't do it. I would make excuses. But it, she says, when I wake up, the very first thing I think of is, what is Jesus going to speak to me today? What is he going to tell me? Because she, when she goes to her chapter and reads it, she's praying, Lord, what do you have for me from this chapter? Speak to my heart. And then as she's reading, she's looking for that thing that the Lord wants to give her. And I just thought that was so precious that she's learning to allow the Lord to speak through his word to her on a daily basis. So will you do the same thing? Will you be in the Word every day and allow God to speak to you? Otherwise, it's like we say we have a relationship with Him, but do we really if we're not communicating with Him? That's how relationships are developed, right? Well, how do we communicate back with Christ? Through prayer. So really, fellowship is not complicated. You have fellowship by going to the Word, allowing the Lord to speak to you, and then talking to Him about what He's just told you. And the cycle goes over and over. You read something, He tells you something, and you speak that back. Let me give you an example, maybe. Maybe an example would help. We were reading through Ephesians last week. And when I got to chapter 4, the thing that struck me in this chapter was verse 15 where it says, But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. And when I read that verse, I thought, ah. Uh -uh. I felt like the Lord was saying to me that He wants me, and not just me, but everyone in our church, to speak the truth to one another in love. This wasn't addressed only to the pastors of the church. This was addressed to the whole body. All of you, the Lord is saying, speak the truth to one another in love. And by that means, we will all grow up into Christ. Or we will mature as a body as we speak the truth to one another in love. So I felt the Lord just speaking these thoughts to me. He also says, just having truth alone is not enough. You have to speak the truth in love. And just loving is not enough. You've got to speak the truth in love. Truth and love must go together like hand and glove. And so when the Lord showed me that, then I turned it back in prayer. And I started to pray something like, Lord, thank you for showing me this today. Would you help me to be continually speaking the truth in love to the members of the bridge? I pray that I would be faithful to text my thoughts to them. I pray that you would show them that they are an integral part of helping the whole body grow to maturity. Show them that it's not just the pastors that are to speak the truth in love, but that they have a role to speak the truth in love. And I just began to pray the, what the Lord had shown me, prayed it back to the Lord, and you see there's a circle going on all the time. The word in prayer, the word in prayer, and there's this continual relationship developing. So I want you to have that relationship with the living Lord Jesus Christ. So, it's, it's not complicated. You open this book and you pray, Lord, talk to me. And then you read it, and I would encourage you to read it in its context, noticing the flow of thought of the author, 
What does he start by saying? How does he develop his idea so that you're not taking something out of context and putting a false interpretation on it? Learn how to read in its context. But when you see something that the Lord shows you, pray about that to the Lord. Now, if the Lord, well, let me say it this way. Let me give you four practical, simple steps to do this. Number one, find a time and a place for this. Find a time and a place. I would encourage you for the time to do this the first thing in your day before you do anything else. And if you say, well, you mean I've got to do this for five minutes over my cereal before I rush out the door? No. <laughs> because you'll never be able to do this in five minutes over your cereal bowl. I, you need to give it some time. I would encourage you to at least carve out 30 minutes for this. Some of you may want an hour. Um, it's going to take some time to have the Lord speak to you and you speak to the Lord. You remember, you're developing a relationship with the living God here. And if you say, well, I just don't have 30 minutes, then you need to go to bed 30 minutes earlier and get up 30 minutes earlier the next day. That's just how simple it is. You, you've got to make time for this. Don't wait for it to appear. It's never going to appear. You've got to carve out the time. We all have time for what we really want to do. Let's be honest. Right? We have time for TV. We have time for video games. You say, I don't have time for the Lord. That's just a lie. Okay, let's just label it for what it is. We're lying when we say that. We don't want time with the Lord. It's not that important to us. And it ought to be, right? What can be more important than developing a relationship with the God who made us? Really? Okay, so we need to find a time and a place. A place, a place where you're not going to be distracted with 50 text messages coming in and the phone's ringing and you're getting notified from all these different apps on your phone. Maybe you should just leave your phone in the other room while you do this. <laughs> there are, are, you know what? These phones are so cool. They can do, they can, they can do like anything. <laughs> you can make movies of them, take pictures, talk, but they can distract you from the one thing needful which is relationship with God. And so do what you have to do. Turn them off, mute them, whatever you need to do. Make sure that thing doesn't distract you from time with Christ. So find a time, find a place where people aren't going to be interrupting you. I like to take prayer walks, especially Saturday mornings. It's a favorite thing I like to do because I'm all alone and I can talk to the Lord undistracted and undisturbed and, uh, it's wonderful. I love it. Number two, pray that the Lord would speak to you before you do anything else. Ask Him to. Lord, speak to me today. Just speak to me. And then read the Scripture and expect God to speak to you because you've just asked Him to. Start reading the Scriptures. And I would encourage you to have a notebook next to you where you're jotting down ideas that come to you, thoughts, insights, reflections, uh, maybe relationship of one paragraph to the next, maybe an outline of the chapter you're reading. I mean, you will get so much more if you have a pen and paper next to you than if you just read the Bible and walk away. Because you are preserving the thoughts that, you're, that you were given at that moment. You're preserving those thoughts. And so jot down your ideas, especially if you feel like the Lord speaks to you specifically and tells you something he wants you to do from his word. Make sure you make a note of that. You don't want to neglect that or ignore that. Okay, step number three. Once you feel like the Lord has given you an insight or a thought, 
then share it. Don't keep it to yourself. Remember, we're to speak the truth in love. It's part of our responsibility as members of the body of Christ. So text one another. And brothers, I want to encourage you because a lot of times I'm the only one texting anymore. And so I... I like Javier's thoughts. When you chip in, keep doing that, brother. And Oleg, when Oleg chips in and Fernando, make it a regular part of your day to be texting each other because that helps us all to grow in Christ. And the women, I, I think the women are kind of cooled down too. I want to encourage all of the women to text one another what the Lord is showing you. You know, it's it helps us all. I know I was talking to Miong and she says, but my English is so bad. She feels like she can't write in, you know, English that we, we understand what she's saying. And it's a blessing to us whenever she writes to us. So don't let any inability that you feel or deficiency you feel you have stop you from sharing the truth that God has given you. You're like a lampstand. Christ is the true light, but we are reflections of his light. We need to give it out. And then fourthly, talk to the Lord about what he's just spoken to you. Now, if he is shown you a sin in your life, talk to him about that. Confess it to the Lord. Repent before the Lord. Forsake that sin. If he's shown you something about his glory, worship him. Maybe sing a song of praise. Uh, verbally give thanks and praise to him. If he's shown you from his word a need in someone else's life, talk to the Lord about that need. Intercede for that person. Pray that the Lord would meet that need. Do you see what I mean? You're taking his word, and as the Lord speaks, you're turning it into prayer, and the cycle just goes round and round. And by doing this, you're developing fellowship with Jesus. You're like a priest going to the table, taking a loaf of bread off, tearing a big chunk, and feasting and nourishing your soul because you do have a soul need, and you're meeting that need for sustenance and nourishment and strength so that you can keep living for Christ. So are you going to take advantage of your priestly privilege this week? Will you make fellowship with Jesus Christ a priority in your life? Start your day with Jesus Christ. You have no business doing any business until you've done business with Christ. He is the first and foremost. He deserves all of our love and our attention and our worship. And so let's, let's, let's do that. Let's enjoy our Lord. Let's let Him be the Lord of our lives by letting Him speak through His Word and then respond back. Lord, we do pray that we would meet You at the table every day. We thank you that you are the bread from heaven. We thank you for the nourishment and strength that we get when we, when we meet with you and we talk with you and you talk with us. Lord, you are the source of our life. We could not make it. We have no strength apart from you, Lord. Without you, we can do nothing. And so, Lord, we, we pray that we might just love you and glorify you and meet with you on a regular basis. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Amen.